You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and you are in for quite the entertaining hour today as I am joined by Dave Rubin. Dave is an American political commentator, a former comedian, a YouTube personality, and a talk show host. He's the creator and host of The Rubin Report, a political talk show on YouTube and Blaze TV. He is also the author of the book, Do Not Burn This Book, which he dedicates to Ben Affleck. And we'll get into the reason why, much to Ben Affleck's disapproval i imagine so let's not waste any time but what i would say is if you can i'd encourage you to try and watch this episode on our youtube channel because dave's reactions uh, and facials are just something else they add another dimension to this interview so if you want to watch the episode youtube.com forward slash freedom pact Okay, so let's dive right in to this episode. Dave, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. It's good to be with you. So I think the most burning question on everyone's mind who's read the book is, has the Affleck empire come for you yet, legally? (laughs) You don't want to mess with a guy who possibly was uh, juiced up for his role as Batman, uh, probably the least impressive Batman that we've had so far. Uh, although that's a bit of a side note. Uh, yes, I did dedicate the book to Ben Affleck because obviously he had a lot to do with my my political awakening when he got into that fight with Sam Harris and Bill Maher on real time a couple of years back. Uh, I have not heard directly from Affleck or the Affleck people, but I do live here in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I think about it a lot, actually, that it, it would kind of be funny to to bump into him somewhere or or meet him or be introduced to him or, or something, because I actually would love to talk to him about what happened that night. And I wonder if he's evolved in his thinking at all, because you know he's seen some of the, the clips about it. I'm not saying he's read my book, but there were so many clips examining what he did that night and the overacting and the anger and the emotion that has become you know, such a part and parcel with, with the modern left that it would be great to have that conversation with him. I, I would love to do it, but maybe dedicating the book to him uh, eliminated that opportunity. Yeah, you're one of the rare humans alive that have actually made an enemy with Batman. I love it. Um, <laughs> what, what was it about that uh, whole Ben Affleck situation that acted as such a, a catalyst for your political awakening anyway? Yeah, well, I had been thinking about a lot of the issues with the left. For a couple of years, you know, I was on the Young Turks at the time, so a lefty YouTube channel. I considered myself a progressive. I had grown up as, as a liberal. Uh, but suddenly, around 2015, 2016, even a little bit before that, 2014, I had started seeing something wrong with the left, which I said was my side. I mean, all the videos that I was doing at the time when I started talking about this, I kept saying, hey, we lefties, we liberals, we're the ones dropping the ball on free speech. 
we're, we're canceling people, we're, we're destroying people, we're calling everybody racists and Nazis and all of these horrible things. And it's just not true. And, and I think what happened that night is that when Affleck, who was very red in the face and he was really jacked and he was angry from the get-go, when he went after Marr and Sam Harris, and Sam Harris, as I mentioned in the book, I didn't even know who he was at the time. So here's this mild-mannered neuroscientist talking about meditation and mindfulness, and suddenly he's being called a racist by Batman. It was so over the top that it almost was as if I had been thinking something for a long time, but I couldn't quite break the ice. It was like all the thoughts were just under that layer of ice. And then seeing Batman screaming, you're racist at Bill Maher. I mean, Bill Maher, who is the biggest lefty we have, you know, sort of in Hollywood, who's been fighting for lefty causes forever, who despises Trump. And suddenly, you know, he's, he's a racist. And this neuroscientist is a racist. And it was so obvious that in many ways, sometimes it takes, it takes like a really obvious punch in the face to, to get, to fully crystallize what you've been thinking for a while. And that's what, that's what happened to me. When you made that video, I think it was about a 20 minute video where you sort of deconstructed um, what happened that night. What sort of reaction did you face initially from the left? And did that just sort of uh, prove the prove your point to yourself in the way that they, they were acting? Yeah, uh, it's a good, good question, because I remember very vividly doing that video. I didn't have a home studio or anything. I just did that in my house with my webcam, you know, and I just tried to to take the exact video as it aired and then just interject my comments in the middle of it. I didn't edit it, I didn't cut anything out. I just said, here's what they said, and here's what happened. And, and it was about a 20 minute video, as you said. Um, you know, I was still on the Young Turks at the time, obviously, and I had just, just started tweeting out some of these ideas a little bit more, talking about these ideas a little bit more. What happened was that video started making the rounds and, and catching fire. I have no idea how many views it has now, but like for whatever it was at the time, it was a nice amount of views for me. And, it's, and I started seeing the comments, a lot of people agreeing with me, a lot of lefties like, yeah, Dave, you're onto something. Something's wrong with the liberals, what's happening here. But then what I didn't expect was the unbelievable amount of hate I was gonna get from the lefties. That was the part that I just did not expect. I honestly thought, and maybe this was just a mistake or naivete or whatever, I honestly thought, hey, if I calmly explain, you know, the difference between ideas and people, that of course you have to be able to criticize ideas, but you shouldn't be bigoted towards people. If I calmly explain that, by the way, the exact same way that Sam Harris was calmly explaining it, that, that surely these people will see that and, and they won't go crazy. But that was the beginning of just sort of an unending amount of hatred I started getting from lefties that actually still exists even to today, although I deal with it much better these days. I wonder how you find on the other end of the political spectrum then, how have you found the difference between the way in which the left um, interact with you on your, on your right-wing ideas and the way that the right seem to interact with you on your left-wing ideas? I think things like pro-choice, for example. Yeah, I mean, look, I make an argument and don't burn this book, a pro-choice argument. That, that is like the biggest no-no for conservatives. And yet I get no hate from conservatives. You know what I get? I get emails from people that say, hey, Dave, I love the book. I disagreed with you about abortion. I'd love to buy you a beer sometime and talk about it. Or, or when I've debated abortion with conservatives like Ben Shapiro or Glenn Beck, or I've debated the death penalty. I'm against the death penalty. I've de debated the death penalty with Dennis Prager. Or when I've talked about gay marriage with any of those guys or, or other conservatives or even religious uh, Christian conservatives, what I find is mutual respect and a, a willingness to agree to disagree. It doesn't mean you're a horrible person, 
and I can still break bread with those people and, and have become very good friends with those people. I just had Prager was here just last week for dinner. Uh, on the other side, even though I have some of those, what you are saying are traditionally liberal lefty beliefs, I also believe in public education. I'm starting to worry about that one because I'm not sure it really works in a time of Corona anymore. But, um, but what I find is with the lefties is if, you, if there are 10 things you're supposed to believe as a lefty, if you believe nine and a half of them, you're out, you're out. They want you to believe 10 out of 10. And not only that, they want you to believe it the second they believe it. So, so for example, gay marriage is a really good one on this. For, for hundreds of years in American history, 200 plus years, we did not have gay marriage, obviously. And for thousands of years of human history, most countries did not have gay marriage. But the second the progressives decided you have to have gay marriage, which by the way, I think is a just cause. I believe that equality for all people to enter whatever contract they want, uh, as long as it's two consenting adults, I believe that's a just cause, obviously. But they went from, okay, if you don't believe it, the second we believe it, you're a homophobe. Now that's really dangerous because you know that Barack Obama guy was not for gay marriage the first time he ran for president. Joe Biden, for 40 out of his 47 years in public office was not for gay marriage. Hillary Clinton was not for gay marriage. So when they just turn and they say to everybody, if you don't believe something, the second we believe it, then you're a homophobe, you're a racist, you're a bigot. It's actually not what you're doing to those people. It's what you're doing to yourself that's the danger because you've given yourself no room to ever, to ever expand your world. And I think that's in many ways why the left is, is so bananas right now. Mm. With that uh, Affleck um, example we talked about, it makes me wonder how we've arrived at this state in which if a word is thrown against someone like racist or, or, or homophobe in a, in a public setting, they automatically become that in the, sort of the public eye then. There's almost no judge or jury. It's, like, it's straight to the executioner. And it makes me think of an example um, recently with J.K. Rowling, for example. I was watching a, a, a breakfast show here in the UK called Good Morning Britain in which they were having a debate on whether J.K. Rowling's new book was transphobic. And the guy that was arguing that it was transphobic, um, he was talking really passionate about it. And Piers Morgan, the presenter, said to him, have you read the book? And he said, <laughs> well, no, but I've read a review of the book. And <laughs> Piers said, like, we're having this argument. No one's read the damn thing. Yeah. So why do you think we've arrived at this place in which we're just so quick to sentence people to their death without even hearing them out? Well, by the way, we should also note that J.K. Rowling's book, of course, is a work of fiction. It's a work of fiction, right? So transphobic. I mean, the word, when they put phobia on everything, phobia is an irrational fear. I don't think there's anyone really walking around that thinks that J.K. Rowling has an irrational fear of trans people, meaning that if she met a trans person, she would have an irrational fear of them. What she is saying is she doesn't want people to be forced to use specific pronouns. I've heard her say you want to treat people with respect. All of the things that any good, liberal, decent person would want is, are the same things that she wants. She doesn't want to be bludgeoned into having to bow to a mob or having to use specific words. This is, this is real. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is a real thing that any of us that, that care about freedom should want. But this is what they do with everything. Instead of having an honest discussion about J.K. Rowling's thoughts or the book, they either don't read the book or they argue with an imaginary position that she doesn't 
even really have. And also, you know, there's a, there's a real danger in this that, especially in the world of fiction. So if you were to write anything about a gay person, would that be homophobic? Anything about a trans person or, or a black person, would that be racist? I mean, Silence of the Lambs, which I think is probably the best horror movie of all time, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill, the main bad guy, what was he doing? He was, he was capturing women because he had a gender identity issue and he was literally building a suit, a female suit to wear as a man. So there's some gender identity stuff there, right? There's some stuff that grapples with, with, with trans issues there. Is the argument uh, that the author of uh, the book, Silence of the Lambs, is that, that he was a transphobe? He came up with a deeply disturbing psychological thriller. That's a, a spectacular book and a spectacular movie. Jonathan Demme, I think, was the director. Is he a transphobe? Is, was um, Anthony Hopkins for, for playing um, uh, Hannibal Lecter, who actually had some gender identity stuff of his own and sexuality stuff of his own. Was he, was he homophobic? I mean, it's all just nonsense. But for some reason, partly fueled by, by uh, social media, we pretend that these are real issues, but they're actually not real issues. Yeah. When I spoke to, to Brett Weinstein, we talked about um, social justice and the reason behind it. And the main thing I got from him, he seems to think that it all stems from um, people who are just trying to sort of substantiate some sort of meaning into their lives by attaching themselves to maybe like the first cause they see that's trending. Do you agree with that? I think there's a lot of legitimacy to that. I think that, you know, the hole that Jordan Peterson filled at the, at the peak of the Jordan Peterson movement, and obviously I was on tour with him for a year and a half, the main hole that he filled is, that, is, the, is the hole of purpose. You know, people think that life should just be about making you happy or you should just be doing what you want all day long or, or something like that. And that really isn't. It's about finding some purpose. And I'm not, I'm not just saying that at some like intellectual level or something like that. I'm saying it in my own life, as I started saying what I was thinking and then more people started finding me, it, it reinvigorated my ability to do that. And then I kept doing it. The things that I cared about kept growing. It helped me grow a business. It helped me buy a home. Uh, it helped me expand my family. Like, and, and through that, I now have purpose. I wake up every morning and trust me, I got a lot of stuff to do, but the cool part is I want to do most of it. You know what I mean? Like I want to do it because I found purpose. And then by the way, when you, when you find true purpose that's fulfilling to you, not because you're bowing to a mob or pretending to you know, virtue signal that you care about something, when you find true purpose, well, you will find happiness through that. I'm not happy 24 hours a day. I'm still worried about the world and I, you know, I, I have fears and, and wants and you know, all of those things like everybody else. But, but purpose is, is the, the purpose of life is to find purpose. That, that's it. So a lot of these social justice warriors, they're sort of spinning around with no real meaning in their lives. And I think you could attach that there's no system of belief there too. And when you don't believe in anything sort of outside of yourself, you'll believe in anything that's right here. And then they hear, oh, Black Lives Matter, like as if it's your salvation. And then next thing you know, you're burning down a building and you're not even sure why you did it. A term you use um, a lot is this political closet. What do you mean by that? How do you define it? And why do you think that so many people are trapped in there? Yeah, well, look, the political closet, which I think almost everyone is in to one degree or another, uh, is the idea that you're not sharing what your political beliefs are because you feel some sort of retribution. So obviously the closet, most people associate that with sexuality, a gay person uh, being in the closet, not telling people who they are. And the way I would describe 
that a little bit further. It's like, if you're in the closet, well, there's only room for one. And it's, if, you were in the, if you were a painter, let's say, a painter should have access to all of the colors. And that way you can paint the best thing. Doesn't mean you have to use all of the colors all the time, but you should have access to all those colors. When you're in the closet for whatever it is, your political beliefs, your sexuality, some family secret, whatever it might be, you're not accessing all of the colors in front of you and you're, what you can then create in the world will not be full. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. I, I would say almost everyone that's not woke is feeling that to some degree. If you're woke, you, you could say whatever you want. You can destroy as many people as you want. You'll never be banned from Twitter. You can get people fired from their jobs, all of these things. It's anyone that takes any position outside of that. I'm not even talking about those scary conservatives. I'm talking about just someone like me who holds a couple positions that aren't woke. Well, they're going to come get you. And thus, people end up staying in the closet when they really should be out there fighting for what they believe in. Mm. It's interesting because um, I host this show with one of, with my friend. We both, you know, do different episodes together. And he recently interviewed Douglas Murray. And nobody knows, like myself or Joe, we've never talked about our own political beliefs. Like we never say, you know, because we try and go across the whole spectrum. But as soon as he spoke to Douglas Murray and that video did quite a lot of views by our standard, the amount of comments that came in, just branding uh, my friend, um as a as a racist as as this and that not because he said anything but just because he spoke to douglas murray who may have uh, a stigma attached do you think that's a reason why people are trapped in this closet again it's like this fear of being lambasted even if you you know have a free thinking thought yeah well think about what you're saying you're not even you're not even commenting on your co-host's thoughts you're Mm. commenting on his ability to speak to somebody else and then they apply that label to them which gets to what i was saying about earlier look douglas is a very good friend of mine he's traveling the united states right now he just stayed with us for a couple days uh he is a great thinker he is a good man douglas is not a bigot or a racist or to use their language in islamophobe it's a word that doesn't even make sense uh, Douglas is none of those things. D- Douglas is a good man. He happens to be a conservative by, by you know, British political standards, which is a little bit different than, than American political standards. Um, he, he's absolutely none of those things. You know, Douglas also happens to be gay. He doesn't really make a big deal about it, but it's not, he's not closeted in that sense. And it's like the same people who would tell you they're for gay people. Well, then Douglas goes out there and says, you know, gay people should be worried about Islamism or jihadism or whatever he might say, or, or should be worried about uh, any, any group that might infringe on the equality of gay people. And now they're supposed to be for gay people. And now here's a gay person saying what we all know to be true. And then what is he? Now he's an Islamophobe, he's a bigot, he's a racist. So very little of what they, says, of what they say matters. And I would say for your, for your co-host and for you, if you're gonna do this, if, if you love doing what you do, and I assume that you do, then you gotta figure out a way to put that behind you. And I'm not saying it's easy because I've been there too. And sometimes I've had people on that still years later, people attack me for, and I'm like, ah, should I have even bothered to do it because it's a headache? But the, the truth is um, your own counsel should you keep. I'm loosely quoting Yoda, and that's the truth. Love it, yeah, as Douglas Murray said to us, he says, stand your ground. You need to stand yeah. up and be brave. And um, yeah. yeah, exactly, man. And so it's interesting to me as well, because with Douglas, we had on, we've had Gad Saad, uh, Brett Weinstein, all these people that are involved in the quote unquote intellectual dark web. It seems that those interviews tend to get far more traction 
than any others we do. So I wonder, why do you think that there's such a burning desire to hear from people in this intellectual dark web? Because people aren't idiots. But if you, if you feed them, can I curse? Can I curse? Of course you can. If you feed them shit, they'll eat shit. That's the answer. And that's what the mainstream media does. And that's what most, even, even a lot of the YouTube channels that are in this space and everything else, if you just feed people generic crap for clicks and to keep them angry and everything else, they'll keep eating it because they won't even realize that if they just turn this way or turn this way, that there actually is a buffet of really interesting stuff just right over there. And all they have to do is click over there to get it. So I've got some political differences with Brett. I've got some political differences with, uh, with Douglas. I'm sure I have some with Gad, although usually we, we agree pretty tightly on stuff. But I have no doubt. But, but the point is that I know them to, to be good people. Uh, and I know them to be honest people who are having honest discussions. You know, Brett is a biologist. Gad is an evolutionary biologist. It's very similar, actually. And, uh, and, and Douglas, obviously, is a, is a historian and conservative author. And they're using their life's work to, to explain some of the madness of today so that we don't end up with the madness of crowds, which was obviously Douglas's last book. So I think people want to, they want to be enlightened. They want to be smart. I think that's basically why my show took off. I just thought, well, nobody's having the conversations that I'd like to have. So I, I may as well have them myself. Hmm. There seems to be this new wave of interest behind the legendary George Orwell novel, 1984. <laughs> what parallels yeah. can we draw between that work of fiction and today? Or can we even call the book fiction anymore? Ah, there, so there, I mean, there's so much here. So first I would say, not, I don't want anyone to click out of this video right this moment, but I did do a review for PragerU uh, with yeah. Michael Knowles. We did a review of 1984, the books. So I, so I dive into it there for about an hour. Um, I, I would say on the, on the surface level though, um, I mean, in essence, the book is about a world in the future where truth will have no meaning. It will be impossible to speak the truth because we won't have the words for it. Newspeak, we, will, we won't even remember what happened yesterday, the memory hole. We will be in a world where regulators will be constantly confusing us so no one will know what's going on. And, and by the way, that kind of sounds like the world we're in right now. Um, so everyone should read 1984, if, if, you know, even if you just do the cliff notes or, or you check out the Prager video. But I think more than anything else, this, this confusion about truth. You know, I keep telling people we're in, a, we're in a reality war right now. You know, people think we're in a political war or we're in a cultural war. But I would say those are battles. We're in a political battle, Trump versus Biden. That's a political battle, left versus right, Democrat versus Republican. Uh, we're in a cultural battle, you know, Hollywood versus traditional values or whatever, you know, music and all of the fights that happen culturally and celebrity and all that. But both of those are just battles that sit beneath the reality war, because the reality war is that depending on what you watch and how you get your news, you're going to live in a very different world than your neighbor. And we have to figure out how to go forward in a society that will continue to be fragmented. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I don't think anyone knows what the answer to that is. Yeah. Do you think Big Brother would have had a field day if he'd had Twitter to his disposal? Oh, man. Well, we're giving, we're giving away the castle on Twitter every day. We're all telling everybody what we think, whether we know what we think or not. We're just saying it all day long. But I would say, you know, look, Big Brother, I mean, you know, Google can scan your emails for advertisements. Um, you know, sometimes you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, you know, I, I really should buy a new lamp or something. And the next thing you know, on Instagram, they're, they're selling you lamps. It's like, how did that happen? There, there are so many things that, that lead us to living in 1984 
at the moment. We put Google Home and Siri and Alexa, we put devices in our houses that listen to us all day and then deliver us ads. And then we wonder how the system constantly can like reconfigure itself uh, to manipulate us even more. And it's because we're, we're giving it the juice. Mm, yeah, it's funny. I just had, I just got up another interview with an author in which we were talking about his book. And since coming off that hour long interview, for the last hour being on my phone, I keep getting adverts for that book everywhere. It's crazy, man. What does that tell you? Something, something weird's going on. We've all had that experience. We've all had that. I, oh, I want to buy something, whatever, you know, literally, I, buy, I talk about, I got to buy a pack of gum. Next thing you know, you're getting served gum ads. What the hell is going on here? Um, one thing I'd love to get your opinion on, um, there's been a, a lot of talk on online uh, last night. Uh, Joe Rogan published an episode of the podcast with Alex Jones. Um, yeah. And that podcast seemed to disappear off Spotify. Now, I know Joe Rogan's come out since saying it was a, a technical problem or something and they had to re-upload it. I'm not too you know, sure whether that's true or not. But when I was watching the episode as well, I noticed that unlike the old episodes, no matter what Alex Jones said, Joe Rogan fact-checked there on the spot there, which mm-hmm. isn't something that they always used to do. What do you make about the whole Spotify censorship around Joe Rogan? Do you believe that is the case or...? So, well, first off, let me say, I haven't watched the episode yet. I saw, I saw a couple clips, but I haven't watched the full episode. That, that's sort of secondary to your question, though. As far as the move to Spotify, I, I don't begrudge Rogan making a lot of money on the move. He's entitled to do whatever he wants. He deserves all the success that he can get, and people care about what he says, so that's all great. The idea, though, that going to Spotify was going to somehow solve some of the censorship issues on YouTube or something else, it's like, no, he just went to another big tech company. Mm-hmm. So when they, you know, they made him take down some episodes from his archives and he did it so that's for people to judge whether rogan did the right thing or not um i guess that it has affected a little bit about how he goes about doing an interview where now if he sits down with alex jones he feels like he has to fact check him all the time but he puts on all sorts of people that say all sorts of zany things all the time he puts on you know abby martin who's you know a really far left uh commentator he puts on her all the time to spew nonsense and doesn't fact check her all the way so i think that's going to be a tough spot. I say this as an interviewer. If, if your, if your uh, need or goal as an interviewer is to fact check every sentence coming out of somebody's mouth, then it's not going to be a fun job to be an interviewer. But also, it would sort of be impossible. And, and also, by the way, we know that obviously Rogan's not going to do it. He knows he's under a specific microscope with Jones, but he's not going to do it with some, somebody else. So th- those are all commentaries that Joe, I, I would say, has to deal with for himself and everything else. The bigger issue is that the Spotify thing doesn't solve anything. You're just, moving, you're just moving from one big tech platform to another big tech platform. And, and even someone like Joe, who's got you know, more money than you can ever imagine, it's like he's still susceptible to the idea that the woke culture that seemingly has infected Spotify to some level, well, maybe it hasn't infected the CEO yet. Maybe they're keeping him there for now. But we know that once the woke uh, virus is in any system, and I'm sure you discussed this with Gad. This is what his book is about, about the parasitic mind. Once that culture has been infected, it affects everything. So my guess is that this will not end well for Rogan or Spotify. Hmm. You mentioned Jordan Peterson already. You've obviously spent a lot of time with him on the public scene and private. You've toured together. You've interviewed him on the Rubin Report. Um, what have you learned from spending a lot of time with Jordan Peterson, who has recently uh, come back onto the internet, everyone saw his, his YouTube video the other day. I think that's a, it's a great thing for the world to have him back. 
Yeah, well, we needed him, man. We, we really did need him. You know, some of the chaos I think that we're all feeling right now, had Jordan been here this entire time, I think it actually could have helped. He, that's how truly influential he was worldwide. Mm -hmm. I actually think that the message about clean your room before you clean the world and, and, and the rest of the 12 rules, I think we're affecting so many people in such a big way. And his disappearance, I think, actually has left a hole that, that certainly I and, and nobody I know can fill. From, mm -hmm. you know, you, you add me and... Rogan and everybody else, we can't fill that hole. So, so we miss Jordan. I personally miss him. And I was glad to see that video, obviously. And I've had some communication privately with him uh, in the last little bit. Um, I can tell you this about Jordan. Jordan, the man that you saw publicly, was exactly the same man that, that I know privately. There was not even the slightest bit of difference. Um, you know, sometimes public people, actors particularly, and, and comedians especially, they're one way off camera and then the camera turns on. And by the way, I, this isn't even a judgment call. Comics especially, it's like you turn it on when the camera's on. You can't be doing that thing all the time, right? You can't be that every second of the day. So there's a certain type of person though that, you know, might be one way off camera, camera goes on, then they're in their persona mode or something like that. Jordan was exactly the same way always. He cared about the exact same things. He treated people the exact same way. Um, the amount of people that I saw this guy have a hand in, in ultimately fixing themselves, I mean, it was, it was just absolutely incredible. So I, I have nothing but love and ad admiration for him. And, and I look forward to seeing him back, hopefully not just in a little webcam video on YouTube, but, but really back in action. But my guess is that probably doesn't happen until sometime next year. Obviously, Jordan wrote 12 Rules for Life. So turning it to you, what would be some of Dave Rubin's rules to live a, a better, happier, more successful life? Yeah, well, I do some of this. I, I don't lay out rules in, in the steadfast way that Jordan does in 12 Rules, but uh, chapter 10 of Don't Burn This Book, I do lay out some of the techniques that, that have been helpful to me. You know, a lot of them are related to technology because I think that, you know, technology, as I keep telling people, you know, it's like fire. Fire, yeah, it's good. It can warm you up and it can boil your water. It can also uh, burn you and, you know, a fire can cause your house to burn down. So it, it is what it is and it's up to you to use it for good and bad. I think social media has done amazing things. Here we are talking right now, like that's pretty great. But at the same time, you can get addicted to it. You can get sucked into it. You can, the misinformation, the obsession, all of those things, those things are real. Those things are real. So uh, one of the things that I tell people, well, well you know, I, I do August off the grid where I have no phone, no news, no current events, no nothing. And it's, a, it's one month out of the year, one out of the 12 months that I take to reset and get a little perspective and come back feeling fresh and, and ready to go. And it's been very helpful for me. I know that not everybody can do that. Um, but, you know, if you just try not to be on the machines on the weekend, I try my hardest not to really be on there. I try not to tweet on the weekends. Every now and again, I do. I'm not saying these are like, you know, biblical rules that, you know, 10 commandments here. But if you try to control these things, you know, don't bring your phone in your bedroom. It, your, your phone shouldn't be the last thing you see before bed and the first thing you see in the morning. Little things like that, I think, I think can help people get back to, well, it's really, it's just getting back to living the way we lived 20 years ago, which in retrospect, maybe wasn't that bad. Mm. Gadsad says that the granddaddy of all pathogenic ideas is postmodernism. And I think he said on this show that when you start to negate the scientific truth, that that's a, a one-way ticket to living in a toxic, toxic world. Do you agree? Oh, well, I absolutely agree. I've discussed this with, with Gad many times. He's a great explainer of, of this. I mean, in essence, 
the idea that because white men have made discoveries of the past, that something is either inherently wrong or that science is somehow systemically racist hmm. or that math or physics or anything else, these, these things, these are the great unifiers. Math is the great unifier of the universe. The idea that you, if you discover a scientific discovery or, or you can unfurl a mathematic equation and suddenly your lived experience is, meaning I'm a, I'm a transsexual, black, Latina, lesbian or something, that that supersedes the, the, uh, the, the problem that you've solved, the equation that you've solved, the discovery that you've made, that, that's actually crazy. And that is at the essence of postmodernism. Uh, that your lived experience somehow is more important than what is empirically true. And, you know, look, the simple way to look at this is these, these immutable characteristics things that they're trying to make us really care about. The truth is we all know it's not right. And how do you know? Well, if you right now had a heart attack, would you care what the color of the skin or the gender or sexuality was of the doctor? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You would want the best doctor. If the doctor ran in, you're having a heart attack right now, right? Time is limited. You're in chest pain. You can't breathe, blah, blah. And the doctor walked in. The doctor, you looked, and the doctor's a white heterosexual male. Would you ever say, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I would prefer that we had a, a black trans woman here. Of course you wouldn't. Would you want your plane to be flown by the most qualified pilot? regardless of those characteristics or because of those characteristics. I think we all know the answer to that. But again, we pretend that these are fights that we're supposed to be having for some very bizarre reason. Mm. I see, don't burn this book behind you on the shelf there. Um, I've seen that as a, a bit of a call to individuals to avoid factory set in thinking and to become independent thinkers. What are some of the tools that we need to start thinking independently? I mean, in, in many ways, that really is sort of what the essence of the book is about. I mean, the, when I say factory settings, what I'm talking about is that most of us, without even realizing it, the, the factory settings that you're sort of born, born with, at least from an American perspective, but I think in many ways at a UK perspective as well, is that it's sort of lefty stuff. It's kind of, from our perspective, it's like, oh, Democrats, good, Republicans, bad, liberals care about poor people, Republicans care about money conservatives care about war and, you know, and lefties want peace. Like these really simple things that aren't quite right, but you sort of feel that from movies and music and culture and education, you come up with what in essence builds into this factory setting idea. And, and it's your job to break through that. I, I think the way you break through it is you start consuming some new podcasts. You start getting your information from some other places and don't just, don't just trust something just because it's new. I mean, you, you got to check it yourself, but it's on you now. And, and while that's daunting in a certain way, um, you know, it, that's absolutely daunting in a certain way. At the same time, that's pretty empowering knowing that, oh, you know, back in the day, how, how old are you? 24. You're 24. So uh, I was 24 in 2000. So, uh, so I'm, I'm 44 now. So we got, a, we got a cool 20 years between us. Well, when I was 24, I didn't have the opportunity, this is before YouTube really, I didn't have the opportunity to find information in all these different places. Find, oh, you know, go, oh, there's an author I like, maybe I can somehow talk to him and he's in another country. Like the, the power that you have as a 24 year old, I, I always try to tell that to, to college students. Cause like, man, you're 18, 
the way you can view the world, the information you can get, and the fact that you can share that with people all over the world, that is so freaking cool and empowering and everything else, but it's on you to use it properly. Is an incredible amount of tribalism going on at the moment. And when I spoke to Brett Weinstein, he was quite convinced that there's a very real possibility of a, of a civil war even. How can the person listening to this play a part in healing what seems to be in America anyway, a, a really divided nation at the moment? It's a great question. It's sort of the million dollar question. And you know, our, our results of the election are gonna have a lot to do with some of the strategies on that. I think for the most part, if, if you're a relatively free thinking person, just go about your life. Go about your life. Find the type of people you want to be around, the, the, the right girl or guy you want to be with, and the right friends you want to have, and the type of business you want to build. And, and start that with you, start that locally, and then hopefully kind of build up from there. I think one of the issues we're having is now that we have social media, and we can hear everyone's opinion all the time, we're realizing that uh, from an American perspective, wow, there are 350 million people here and you're not gonna believe it, but they think all sorts of things. That's actually a beautiful thing. I wanna live in a country like that. Um, but, but we have to realize that just because someone says something different, thinks something different, that they're not evil. And, and by the way, that is much more, I would say, of a condition of the left than it is of the right right now. You know, Generally on the right, for the reasons that I said to you earlier, the right's willing to agree to disagree on a bunch of this stuff and, and put some of it aside and, and not force the government to make you do things that you don't want to do. The left right now, although this is cyclical, the left right now is the side that wants to do that. So, so trying, I would say if you're a right-leaning person, you care about liberty, you care about freedom, trying to figure out what, what the, the right life draft is to offer to your lefty friends and family so that they can realize maybe they're missing something here. There's no easy answer to that because it's going to be different for every person, but offering them some openness, even when they're saying bad things about you, even when they're calling you a bigot and a racist because you're for low taxes or something, try not to totally shut them out. It's easier said than done. Mm. A lot of top performers um, that I've spoken to on this show anyway, so you know, could be athletes, businessmen, psychologists, a lot of them seem to say, don't watch the news and just focus on what you can control and your inner circle. What extent do you think we should allow politics to drive our life? And how involved do you think the everyday person should be in it? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, but you can't exclude it altogether. You know, you hear a lot of people say, I don't care about politics. Well, the answer, of course, is, well, politics cares about you. You may not care who's in charge of your city, but the guy that's in charge of your city, I, I'm here in, in Los Angeles, we've got a progressive lefty mayor, and we've got a lot of homelessness right now. We've got drug use, we've got roads that are crumbling, we've got bad schools. These are not disconnected from the fact that we voted in these people. So you could say, well, I don't care about politics. I'm only gonna work, I could say it right now. I could say, you know what? I don't care about what's happening in my city. I'm just gonna keep doing my show and blah, blah, blah. Well that is kind of limiting right there. Like you're going to suddenly go, well, oh, now the road in front of my house, you know, is all busted up and, and the, the gas lines exploding and, you know, whatever, uh, uh, the litany of other problems that, that, that could occur. So I think you have to care at some level, but you don't want to be consumed. There are some people that are going to be consumed by it. There are some people that are going to want to be, um, that, that are going to use it as their whole worldview. 
I think that leads to a lot of misery, actually. Politics shouldn't be your worldview. It should be a specific lens, but you need to have a deeper philosophical or religious worldview behind that, whatever that is for you. Um, but politics, it cares about you. So you got to figure out, even if it's just, well, here's a, here's a good example. I, I have a good friend who's an artist and she's never considered herself political, but she's an artist. So meaning that she's a free spirit. She wants to paint and create and do ceramics and, and sculptures and all of these things. And I've been saying to her for a long time, you know, in essence, I know you're a libertarian because you want to express your view of the world. You want to be free, all of these things. But for a long time, she thought she was a progressive because she thought that meant you're nice and decent and tolerant and everything else. Well, then she started making a little money. And then she's looking at taxes and going, whoa, wait a minute, what are they doing with my money? And I think the real world can ultimately get people to, to come back to some of the right ideas. Uh, but again, it, it takes a little time and it's different for everybody. So election night. Um, I saw Joe Rogan's going to be doing a, uh, a, an election night special where they, you know, they watch along with Alex Jones and, and whatnot. And even though I'm from the UK, I'll be, I'll be checking in throughout the day. What does an election look, uh, night look like for you? Have you got any big plans? Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be doing some live stuff with the Daily Wire guys. So I'll be with Shapiro and Michael Knowles, Ben Shapiro, that is Michael Knowles, uh, Andrew Clavin, and uh, Jeremy Boring over there. Gonna head over there in person. Uh, then I'm gonna come back here. We're gonna live stream with the Blaze folks. So I'll be on with Glenn Beck and and a bunch of those guys. Then we're gonna probably do two live streams uh, on my channel because I think we'll do like a mini one in the middle of it before we have a result. We'll do a mini one for about a half hour. I'll just kind of get people caught up and I'll probably have some tequila and, and some pizza or something. And then we'll do one late night. Hopefully at that point we'll have results. I don't know if we will. And then, you know, depending on whether or not we have results, we'll decide what we want to do for the couple of days and, and even potentially weeks after that. But look, I'm looking forward to it. And, and, and I, the best thing that I can tell you about the election is this, that I was with the Daily Wire guys last time. And uh, Andrew Clavin, who's one of the, the Daily Wire hosts, as it started coming out that Trump was going to win, which of course was not what most people thought was going to happen, Clavin said something that I've repeated many times. I, I try to credit him when I can. He said, you know, what a beautiful thing in America that the thing that nobody thought could happen just happened. That's an incredible thing for this republic, for this democracy, for this way of life that the outsider can win. You may not like this outsider, but what that says to you is you got a chance. You got a chance to beat the media, to beat the elite, to beat the establishment. In America, for now at least, you got a chance. And that's a beautiful thing. So anything can happen. So all of these people right now pretending they know what's gonna happen and pretending that the polls mean anything and the rest of it, it's absolute nonsense. I have two quick questions left for you. Um, I already mentioned Douglas Murray's answer to this question, which was to stand your ground and be brave. If every person on the planet was tuned into the same frequency right now and you could deliver just one short message and you'd want everyone in the planet to hear it, what would Dave Rubin's message to the world be? Think for yourself. That's it. I mean, that's why it's the subtitle of the book. You don't have to come to every conclusion that I come to in the book. I lay out my feelings on taxes and foreign policy and abortion and everything else. You don't have to come to the same conclusions as me, but, but truly if you want to live a, a life that feels full and feels real and, and feels like it's yours, well, then think about those things honestly. Think about them for yourself. Compare them to however you were raised or 
whatever your parents might have thought or your ancestors before that, whatever tradition or religion you grew up in, and see, do these things make sense? And use your own brain to figure it out. Don't just, don't just sit there and believe it because they're forcing you to or because you're afraid someone's going to say something mean about you. Think for yourself. And, and you know what? If, if, you do, if you think for yourself and it goes horrifically awry, I mean, you, you just screw up everything. You lose all your friends, you lose your job and the whole damn thing. Well, then you reevaluate. That's what life's all about. But if you don't think for yourself, then you're just letting somebody else do the heavy lifting. Amazing. The final question I have for you that we ask every guest. For Dave Rubin, what makes a life worth living? I mean, I think a lot of what we've talked about here pretty much is it. But in the course of saying what I think, and, and just expressing whatever was, was going on in my mind, I suddenly met all sorts of interesting people, got to interview incredible people, some of whom you've interviewed, who you've mentioned here. I got to travel the world with the leading intellectual of our time and Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, people every day say nice things to me, a little less now because I'm wearing a mask when I'm out there like a schmuck, so they can't recognize you as easily if you got, especially if you have glasses and a hat on, I basically look like I'm going to rob a bank everywhere I go. Um, but by saying what I think, it, it opened up doors that were unimaginable to me. I, I got to meet comedians who I've loved and musicians who I've loved. I've had, I've had people who I've admired uh, athletes that I've admired who I found out later were fans of mine. I started a business and I employ people and, you know, we, we live in a house that we want to live in and I, I have, you know, the material stuff that I want. Not that it's about that, but I but pretty much have the stuff that I want. And, and again, and more than anything else, I wake up and it's like, man, I got stuff to do. This morning I was up at 4.30 a.m. to be on Fox and Friends in the morning at 5.15. I went to sleep at 5.15 a.m. till about eight o'clock. I woke up at eight o'clock. My phone was like on fire melting because Trump tweeted about me because uh, he saw that I voted for him. It's like, that's pretty cool. That, wh whether you like Trump or not, it's like the president just said something nice about me. That, that's pretty cool. And that, that keeps the drive going. It's like, all right, well, let's see what happens tomorrow. And, and we'll see what happens the day after that. And most, most concerning, we'll see what happens on Tuesday and then figure out what to do from there. Absolutely. So for people who aren't uh, familiar with it already, don't burn this book. Where can they buy the book? Where can they check it out and find more from yourself? Yeah, don'tburnthisbook.com for the book. And you can get it on Amazon and the rest of it. And rubinreport.com is the, is the home for the show where you can actually communicate with me directly and see all our stuff ad-free. Otherwise, youtube.com slash rubinreport and Twitter rubinreport. And my branding guy is pretty solid. Dave, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And, uh, I absolutely have. And, and uh, I hope, you know, we were supposed to tour the book in the UK and we did pretty well sales-wise, but then, you know, COVID happened. We didn't get out there, but I, I hope to meet you in person next time I make it out there. It would be an honor, sir. I'll be tuning into your lives on election night with some popcorn and uh, all the best, my friend. Have a great day. All right, thanks. And that wraps up today's episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. We'll see you guys again on Friday. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. And consider checking out our healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter, which you can sign up to at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter. Until next time, thank you guys for listening to the Freedom Pact podcast.